Hello, welcome back to the uh, Home Bible Study Podcast. Thank you for joining us here. I uh, hope that you have uh, been enjoying these lessons that we've been covering. Currently, we're in the letter to the Hebrews, and I have enjoyed it quite a bit. It's a very challenging book to study, but very rewarding as well. So now um, we've come to a point in the letter to the Hebrews uh, that requires, um, I think, some special consideration. And I'll explain myself. So we have, we left off at the end of chapter six in verse 20, where it said, speaking of the Lord Jesus, whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now I've done a lot of research on what's out there about this person, McKizeldeck. And some of it is so zany and far-fetched and it sounds like comic book stuff. Uh, and then there's the other end where there's hardly anything uh, said about him. We go to some kind of sound uh, studies, but they, they don't really go into a lot of detail because granted, there's not a lot of information. But I think that if we're careful and prayerful about um, the approach to this person, we can still glean a lot of good things um, from what we do know. So uh, the people that originally got this letter, they obviously were exposed to information um, that we have not been. I mean, they... Uh, there was a tradition of knowledge that was passed down through the priesthood that came from uh, originally from Moses uh, and then through the priesthood that was preserved in such a way uh, that uh, we just don't have access to. Now, some of that we do have, but we have a lot of the polluted versions of that information. So I think it's safe for us to stick to the biblical record. And just let's take what we can from the biblical record so that we're safe. Because otherwise, when you start, you know, guessing and supposing things based on extra biblical writings, you get into an area that I think is unsafe. So let's uh, do some research on McKizeldeck together. Because I think it's important for us to understand who McKizeldeck is and why he is being brought to the forefront. Now, prior to this, we've talked about the heavenly calling. That's really what this book is about. It is about the heavenly calling of all believers in Christ. And it's a, this book is designed to get us to look away from the earthly things and onto heavenly things. Now, Jesus had an earthly ministry. A lot of these people knew him, and they, they understood that very clearly. They were given a lot of things to, uh, that are earthly, that are associated with the worship of God, the, the tabernacle, uh, all the, the, the Levitical priesthood, the law. All these things were to shape them into an earthly uh, ministry to others. But now we have in Christ access to the heavenly. And that's what's being alluded to in verse 20 of chapter 6, 
where it says, we have a forerunner who's entered in even Jesus. So he's entered into the Holy of Holies on our behalf as our great high priest. And now we have access to not those things that are a type of things in heaven, but we have access to heaven itself. The Bible says that our citizenship is now in heaven. So the church has a heavenly calling. And that's what this book is about. It is helping people to transition from the earthly things, the old covenant, and the new covenant that is uh, centered in heaven and all the things that occur uh, from a heavenly viewpoint. So it's not to say that we're not to have a ministry here on earth. That's the focus of our ministry. But we need to have understanding that um, this the, the time is short. There's a limited time that we're going to be on this earth and we're going to spend eternity with Christ in heaven. And we need to have our minds on that objective so that it will temper and guide us and uh, kind of um, lead us in how we live our lives here on earth. Because what we do here has an eternal consequence. For some, uh, those who are unsaved, hell and the lake of fire. For those who are saved, we have an eternal weight of glory that awaits us. So um, those are the two spectrums. So Melchizedek is very important in understanding who we are as a church, who we are as believers in this age that we live in, and who and what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. So prior in the book, we saw how that Jesus was superior to Moses, to Abraham, to the angels. And now we're coming to this ultimate um, superiority to say, you know, all those things and all those people had a role to play. And God used those people in very instrumental ways to bring us to where we are even to the point of bringing Christ in the world. But that was the ultimate goal from the beginning is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, right? So the tendency is to glorify these past fathers, right? And they, they, had, they certainly earned um, a certain amount of, um, you know, uh, of honor. You know, they, they were obedient to God. And they should be honored for that. But the ultimate obedience came from the Lord Jesus. And all those people were just types uh, of the one that was to come who would reveal the Father to us. And that's Jesus Christ. So they knew a lot about that that I think we don't. I take for granted that the people that I'm speaking with right now have an understanding of all the things associated with the Old Testament. and But you may not have studied those things. So I am going to do something a little different. I'm going to deviate from our path in Hebrews. And we're going to go back and take a look at Melchizedek in the Old Testament and how he was revealed. And in doing that, I hope that it creates the, the proper framework for why Melchizedek appears at this point in this ministry to the Hebrew people.
Because if you don't have that context, it seems like, well, where did this guy come from? You know, he seems like he comes from out of the blue. And, but it's not, that's not the case at all. All of this, all of the word of God is linked together. There's a connection between all of the word of God. There's one cohesive message that's being delivered. And the more you study the word properly, the more you understand and see that connection. So let's, let's see if we can find that connection together in this study. So before we go on to chapter 7 in Hebrews, we're going to go back and take a look at Melchizedek and see what it is that the word has to say about him. So the first time he's mentioned is in Genesis 14, 18. So I'm going to turn back to Genesis 14. Now that's pretty early on in the book of Genesis. Genesis is probably one of my favorite Old Testament um, books. There is so much foundational information in Genesis that is just elaborated upon throughout the rest of scripture. So I really enjoy um, seeing those things when I, when I come across them, you know, how that something so small, seemingly small, revealed in Genesis turns out to be um, a very weighty key verse to other doctrines. So it just shows how that God's revelation of himself is progressive and he's very patient. You know, God is not in any hurry to reveal things to us or to manifest his plan to us. He's doing it in his time. And if you think about it, he exists outside of time. So uh, whereas we are prisoners of time. So to us, it seems like he's moving serpy slow, but really he's just moving according to his will. So uh, let's look at this first account of Melchizedek. Now this occurs in chapter 14 of Genesis, and I'm just going to give you a summary so that we're not studying Genesis 14. But basically what happens is there's a battle of king, these four kings against five kings. So this is back in a time where, you know, there's kings many and lords many, and they just had kings of everything. And you have to think it was a very brutal time where if there's an area that you wanted to expand your kingdom, you went in and just killed everybody and took it. That's how you expanded your kingdom. That's how you grew your business, you might say. It was very hostile. You would get your uh, people together, your soldiers. You go in and you just take what you want. And it was a might makes right and the strongest prevailed. So um, it's not that much different today. You know, we call ourselves civilized, and, but we kind of do the same thing. If there's some oil somewhere that we want, and speaking of the U.S., we make a reason to go and get the oil and vice versa. So um, that's the way they did it back then. And men have not changed very much in the day we live in. So there's these kings. And I'm not going to go into all the kings. Just know that there were four kings against five. So the, there's the alliances. And that's how they gain power. Still today, there's alliances that are made. And, you know, they build and fortify themselves to go against others. The interesting thing is, is that the kings that were on the losing end of this battle, 
were the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, you may recognize those names, Sodom and Gomorrah, because eventually Sodom and Gomorrah would be destroyed. And we know why. It's because they engaged in every kind of perversion that they could think of. And not just uh, what traditionally has become known as sodomy, which is um, homosexuality. But I'm pretty sure they engaged in a lot of things. And many of the things that we, we don't even want to discuss because um, it's kind of uh, speculatory at this point. But we can uh, certainly look around in our day right now and we can only imagine uh, the, the kind of licentiousness that went on at that time. Um, so these two kings, the king of Sodom and Gomorrah, they're most likely, you know, like sister cities. They're right next to, uh, to each other. And so they formed an alliance uh, and these other kings came against them. Well, the other kings came against them and they stomped them thoroughly, right? So they came in against Sodom and Gomorrah. They, they uh, took Sodom and Gomorrah. They took all the people, everything they wanted that was in the cities, uh, whatever their possessions that they wanted, they took them. And they were like, okay, now we've expanded our um, kingdom. Well, that would be of no consequence to us if not for the fact that one of God's people was among the spoil, right? So this is how we, that's why this battle was significant because I'm sure there was many battles that were fought that we have no record of, but this one God was important to God and important enough to record in scripture because Lot was living in Sodom. He and Abraham, they both left um, their family together and they both grew their people and possessions grew to the point to where they couldn't coexist. So they divided uh, from each other and uh, Abraham said, hey, Lot, you just pick whichever way, place you want to go and I'll take what's left. So. Uh, Lot saw that, you know, Sodom was nice, you know, it was fertile, it was lush, you know, it was like Hawaii, you know, it was the Hawaii of, uh, of lands. And so he's like, yeah, I'm going to go there. And, um, so Abraham took kind of the, the lesser of those two options. And he says, okay, well, I'll take this other that's left over and you go there. So that's what happened. Well, you know, everything that looks good is not good. So unfortunately for Lot, uh, those kings liked that area too. And they came in and conquered it and took everything and they took Lot as well. But the Lord had for one individual who knew that Lot was directly related to Abram. And that individual got away. That's called the providence of God. That is not an accident. That wasn't by chance. God had that to happen for a purpose, to accomplish his purpose. So this one individual got away and he went and he told um, Abraham that uh, Lot was taken, or Abram, I should say, at that time he wasn't Abraham yet, that Lot was taken in with, with the spoils uh, of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
So uh, it says in 14, verse 14 of chapter 14, and when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants born in his house, 318 and pursued them unto Dan. Now understand that Moses is telling this story years after it happened, right? And so by the time he's telling this story, Dan was a place. So that was why he used that reference. And he said um, in verse 15, and he divided himself against them, against these kings, and he and his servants by night smote them and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also, meaning Lot's goods and the women also, and the people. So basically Abraham heard that he, Lot, his nephew, uh, his brother's son, was captive, uh, taken. And so he had a, a, an interest in this war. Otherwise, he wouldn't care what they were doing. So he went, it wasn't because he was benevolent or had any type of feelings towards Sodom and Gomorrah's kings. It was because Lot was taken. So he went, got his men together from his own household, which suggests the fact that he had a very large household. And uh, he was well known because this person knew that Lot was his uh, nephew. And he went and he... Uh, all these uh, kings and their you know, army, he went in by night and just took them, you know, took them out. And uh, what Sodom and Gomorrah, their kings could not do with, the, I'm sure, way more numbers than what Abraham had. Abraham was able to do with this small, uh, this small group of men. Uh, servants of his that were armed and well-trained. So that speaks to the fact that uh, the skill of um, Israel, what would become Israel and their fighting prowess, but more so it speaks to the fact that God is able to use very little and to do a lot with it. And don't forget that. It, you may feel like that you're not, uh, you don't have a lot to offer in the service of God and in in uh, your ministry to others. But just know that God is able to use a widow's might. He's able to use a very little to accomplish a lot. And so it's, it's not of you. Don't look to your ability. Just trust the Lord for what he can do in and through you. So this is what happened. So, um, so Abram got Lot back, all the women, everything. And he was like, okay, this, he handled it. It was done. And now if, this is where it, get, it gets interesting. And we're about to meet Melchizedek in verse 17. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter. So it was a slaughter. Like they didn't just whoop them. They slaughtered them <laughs> after he returned from the slaughter of, forgive me, Childermere. I'm not good at pronouncing these names and of the kings that were with him. So that was originally the king, Chaldemir and the other kings are the ones that originally went against Sodom and Gomorrah and won. And then Abram went and slaughtered them. And so after he returned from that, 
the king of Sodom sees an opportunity. So he, he went out to greet him at the valley of Sheba, which is in the king's dale. And so, so the king of Sodom went out to, to meet Abram. But also it says in verse 18, something else occurred. And Mechizedek, here's our Mechizedek, king of Salem, which Mechizedek means king of righteousness. And king of Salem means king of peace. So Mechizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. And it says of Mechizedek, his, his role in life or what he was known as, he was a priest of the most high God. So uh, it says in verse 19, and he blessed him and said, this is Mechizedek blessing Abram. Uh, he blessed him and he said, blessed be Abram of the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth. So trying to understand that back in this time, there was no question who God was. There was only one God. Adam and Eve communicated that through, throughout posterity. Everyone knew there was only one God, right? There was no confusion that there was only one God. Um, people were uh, poly, was were monotheistic. Now, polytheism came on later where people start creating their own gods out of images and this, that, and the other. But everybody knew there was only one most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth. And this Mechizedek was a priest of the most high God. So it kind of tells you a little bit about what it was like back then as opposed to how it is now where we have all these different um, schisms and beliefs and they don't even believe there's God. But they, they, there's like there's a whole movement called God is dead where there's like, well, there's no God, which is complete nonsense. But um, anyway, back here, they didn't have that problem. Everybody knew who the Most High God was, even if they didn't have a relationship with him like Mechizedek and like Abram did. They knew who he was. They knew that there was one God who created all things. Uh, and it says in verse 20, and, uh, it's, and blessed be the Most High God, which has del hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand, and he gave them tithes of all. So we find out that it wasn't Mechizedek that gave tithes, but it was Abram who gave tithes to Mechizedek. We're going to see that in uh, Hebrews. So from just this little snippet, what can we garner or learn about Mechizedek? Well, I think there's a few things. One, he was very well known. Okay. So people knew who he was. There was no question about who McKizeldick was, what his office was, or who he represented it. Abram knew this, as well as the other people knew. He was a priest of the Most High God. So if he was a priest, he did not make himself a priest. The Most High God made him a priest. Okay? Um... We know that because man cannot take upon a role of the priest 
or any role to represent God in and of himself. Man wouldn't do that because not of the true and living God, because there's no way to know the true and living God unless he reveals himself to you. And that's not a position that they would have taken on themselves. Uh, the Most High God would have had to reveal himself to Melchizedek and given him this role, given him this position. So we know that he had this position. We know that he was a king of righteousness. So uh, he's associated with the Most High God and he was associated with being a ruler in righteousness and also a ruler of peace. So those are very significant titles for a person to have. And only uh, the Lord can give those titles to a man. And that's obviously what happened. And it also, it says that he presented bread and wine. Now here we see him executing the office of the priesthood in that he brought bread and wine. Well, that should make you think of something right away. You know, what do we do when we go to the Lord's table, when he take up the Lord's table? The the night on when he, the Lord was being betrayed, he, he broke bread and gave wine and he said, eat this bread, do this in remembrance of me and drink this cup. For every time that you should drink this cup and eat this bread, uh, you do it in remembrance of me. So at that point, it was a holy convocation. It was a very special, intimate thing to where the Lord Jesus was tying the bread and the cup to his life being offered on behalf of his people. Okay, so here we see Melchizedek bringing bread and wine. So obviously, bread and wine has been associated with the worship of God long before it was introduced to us or at that, that night when uh, he was being betrayed. This has been a part of worshiping God in a special meal that is associated with the Most High God. So for us, we look back to what the Lord Jesus has accomplished. For these people, for uh, Abram and Melchizedek, as well as the disciples that were at that table, it looked forward to what Jesus was going to accomplish. Okay, so here we see it presented that Melchizedek was presenting as part of his priestly office, this bread and this wine. Okay, so it's part of the worship of God. And that was a sacrament associated with him coming to Abram. So he came to Abram to minister to him and he had a particular ministry to offer. One was this bread and this wine. The other thing he said, he spoke to Abram and said that the most high God has given the victory of your enemies into your hands. So he came with a message. He came with this bread and this wine and he came with a message and the message is Abram you did not accomplish this on your own and I don't think Abram thought he did I believe that Abram knew that I'm for sure before he went off with those 300 or so men 
that he prayed and asked the Lord to give him the victory. Even though it's not uh, stated to us, I feel like Abram was, would not be so foolish as to try to do this on his own. Everything he's done up to this point, uh, for the most part, has been uh, he goes to God first. Um, and he seems like that kind of man. So uh, here the Mechizedek comes to reaffirm the fact that God gave him the victory. And they are together celebrating that fact, worshiping and praising the Most High God. And that's the role of any priest, is it not? As priests, as a priest, even as a believer priest, we are to incite worship and praise. We are to encourage one another in the faith that we would be worshiping, praising, and remembering our God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Like, like Hebrew says, consider him. And here we see Mechizedek doing that very thing. He is telling Abram, consider the one who gave you the victory. And let's stop what we're doing. Let's set aside this time and worship him and thank him for what he's accomplished. So this is a very monumental moment in uh, Abram's journey and his growth and in his development. And Mechizedek played a very integral role in that, in that uh, process. So the next thing we see, I think, is the reason why something that we really need to take from this. Abraham gave Mechizedek a tenth of all that he had. So here we see this precedent of worship. Uh, a, a, a priest of God, uh, the sacraments, and also the giving of a tithe. Well, all of those things were were brought to us in the Aaronic um, priesthood, right? Like when the law was given and Aaron and the Levites, that's when we learned about all that stuff. Well, people didn't know anything about all that before then. Not true. Because God is the same today, yesterday, and forevermore. So all those things that we see in the Aaronic priesthood, um, in the law, and the, in, 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 in the way the Levites executed the priestly service, those things were already established. God had already established these things prior to that point, even though there's not a lot of elaboration on it until we get to that point with the uh, Levitical priesthood, these things were established because the righteousness of God never changes. Okay, he is immutable. So, so we see these things being done even before the Aaronic priesthood back with Abraham. And Abraham gives him a tenth because Abraham was worshiping the most high God. And if you want to worship God, you go through the priest, right? And here the Lord Jesus sent Mechizedek, 
uh, a priesthood that he established that we don't know anything else about up to this point, right? We don't know anything. Where did this priesthood come from? And, you know, what happened to it after this? We don't know any of that because that's not what's important. What's important is to see that Abraham worshiped and gave him a tenth and offered a tenth of all of his um, possessions to this Melchizedek. And together they worship the Most High God. So that's who Melchizedek is. That's how he's introduced and that's it. There's nothing else said about him until we get to um till we get to Hebrews. But wait, there is one other place that Melchizedek is mentioned. There's uh Psalm 110. So we're going to go to Psalm 110 and see what it says about Melchizedek. So, and it's very important to see um how that the Psalms and Genesis, how they all link together. And the letter to the Hebrews is connecting the dots in a way that we probably would not be able to do on our own. And that's why we need teachers. Teachers, you, if you're saved, you have the same access to God, the Holy Spirit that I do. There's no difference. You can learn anything that I can learn the same way. The only difference is uh, with a teacher, you've been given a spiritual gift to be able to communicate things in such a way that minister to others. It's not that you are smarter or you know anymore. It's just that you have a gift to be able to teach. That's it. And so all of these things are here in the word for you and for me. And if you never listen to any lesson from me or any other teacher, God, the Holy Spirit is going to teach you. Just get in the word, trust the Holy Spirit to lead you, and you'll learn uh, far more than I could ever teach you through these lessons. But, you know, hopefully these lessons assist in that process. So let's go to Psalm 110 and see what it says about Melchizedek. Um, the Psalm is very short. We're going to go through the psalm so that we get an understanding. Hopefully we see, we, we got a good understanding of who Melchizedek was as he was introduced. And now this is where he's, uh, his name is mentioned again and more insight is given. And hopefully it'll give us more understanding of who Melchizedek was and his role and how he relates to the Lord Jesus. So here we see Psalm 110. It says in verse one, the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Now, this is a very important verse. It's important in the sense that the Lord Jesus actually uh, quoted from this verse when they were asking about him and his relationship to David. And he talked about how that David spoke of him. And David, you know, his grave, you can go find his grave, but uh, here I am, the one that he spoke of. So it's important to understand that this is a very important psalm from that aspect. And a lot of people know this verse, you know, it's a familiar verse. And it says, the Lord, speaking of Jehovah, the, the God of everything, said unto my Lord. So this is the father speaking to the son. This is David's stepping back, pulling back the curtain and allowing us to see a conversation that he witnessed 
from the Father to the Son. And it says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So, um, this is what I like to call um, a snippet of the eternal decree of God. And I've mentioned that before. The eternal decree of God is the Father said, I will choose a people to make my own and bring them to me so that they can exist in eternity with me. The son's part of that decree is that he is the redeemer. He says, I will redeem them so that they can be here with you. Okay. And then the Holy Spirit's part of that is I will seal them to ensure their delivery to you. So that's the eternal decree of God in the beginning that he has purposed. And here we see the father saying unto the son, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So what's happening is we're seeing where we are kind of now, where the Hebrew people are as well. As the ages progress and the revelation of God progresses, this is at that point where Jesus has accomplished salvation. He has led captivity in his train, led captivity captive, and he is now exalted through the heavens. And the father says, sit there at my right hand. Okay. You have accomplished all that, that um, I purpose for you to accomplish in salvation. And now it's time for you to sit. Jesus is sitting. He's sitting on the throne. His work is complete. He's, a, he's not like the ironic priest that never sat down. There's never any chairs in the temple or in the tabernacle because they never sat down. They were constantly moving because the, finish, the work was never finished. But here we see the high priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus. He can sit down. And, he, and the father says, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So that's the purpose of where we are now. Time is moving forward. The revelation of God, his purpose is being accomplished. And the ultimate goal is every uh, person that is the enemy of the Lord Jesus will be under his feet. That's what's going to happen. They're going to be his footstool. So um, next we see in verse two, the Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. So here we see where the Lord Jesus is being prophesied about. The Lord, the Father, shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. So David was definitely a king, but from David would come the Lord Jesus. He would be the rod of the strength of the Father, the one that came from him, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, with his strength, he came and he accomplished all that the father purposed for him to accomplish. And he says, rule thou in the midst of thy enemies. And that's what's going to happen in the um, millennial kingdom. He will rule and there will be enemies. He will definitely have uh, rule with an iron fist, an iron rod. But that doesn't mean everybody's going to be happy about the fact that he's ruling. There will be enemies still at that time. And at the end of the thousand year period, those enemies are going to be incited by Satan and revolt against him again. 
and it says he'll just squash them with the word of his mouth. I mean, it's not even, it's just ridiculous to even think about somebody going against the Lord Jesus, exalted in all his power, you know, with all the power of heaven and and all the glory associated with being exalted to where he's been exalted to, but that's what's going to happen. That's the foolishness of sin. So he will rule in the midst of his enemies. In verse three, thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. So this is what he's doing now. He's redeeming a people. He's accomplished the work of redemption. And now there's his heavenly calling. There's that word. See how this all ties together? He's calling out a people to himself, right? He says, many are called, but few are chosen. The ones who he has chosen to be redeemed, a lot of people are going to hear the call. But the call that is specific to those who are chosen, those are the ones who are going to uh, respond. They're going to be willing in the day of his power, right? And that's what it is. We're saved by the power of God. It's grace, right? His grace allows us to be amongst those who have been chosen to receive his all the blessings associated with the Lord Jesus Christ. But he does this with power. You know, a lot of people don't understand how powerful God is. Right now, you know, we we see power as in the thunderstorms or in volcanoes erupting. But there is no greater power manifested than in the salvation of a soul. For a person to turn from the world, the flesh, and the devil and turn unto the Lord Jesus Christ, that's power. That takes power. It says it takes his whole revealed right arm. So that's the power that he speaks of. And he says, they shall be willing in the day of thy power. We're living in that day of his power and we're seeing his power manifested in the salvation of others. And it's all through the gospel message, something so simple. Um, but the next part I think is really important. It says, in the beauties of holiness from thy womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. Now, that is some very beautiful writing. And I am not able to capture the fullness of what's being said here. I mean, I am just not, uh, I don't have the command of the English language to be able to take these concepts and to really properly communicate them. So I'm just going to do the best I can um, to try to make you uh, see what it is he's saying. It says, in the beauties of holiness. So now we see the Lord Jesus. He's exalted. He's sitting on his throne. He's now calling a people to himself. And those people are able to see him in a way that they could not before because of the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. That's the power uh, that has redeemed them and made them willing. Now they're able to see the beauties, the beauties, plural, of holiness. And holiness is definitely a beautiful thing. And the it speaks of the glory that's associated with the appearance, with the presence, uh, the power, the essence of the Lord Jesus. 
it's associated with his holiness. His holiness is what sets him apart from everything else. He has all these attributes. There's a book called The Attributes of God by Arthur Pink, and I highly recommend this book. Uh, it's interesting to study and to see how that Arthur Pink has brought out all these attributes, and it really paints a picture of God in a way that we can't on our own um, understand. But if you put all these attributes together, you start to learn about who and what God is and how far from him we are. But uh, there's uh, attributes like his solitariness, uh, it talks about his decrees or the decree of God, the knowledge of God, his foreknowledge, supremacy, his sovereignty, his immutability, his holiness, his power, his faithfulness, and goes on and on with these very important doctrines. But all of those attributes are made beautiful by his holiness. God's holiness is what makes his love and his power and everything else so beautiful because it's holy. It's set apart. It's so beautiful that visually it's overwhelming in the form of light, pure light. So forgive me for not being able to capture, um, all that that means, but I'm going to continue to study and try to grow in the word so that I can express that. But I can feel it, what it means. I can feel through God, the Holy Spirit, the beauty of his holiness. I have experienced it personally in my interactions with the Lord Jesus, the beauty of his holiness. And it's overwhelming. You know, it is full of peace and it's just beyond description. You know, I don't have words to describe it, but I know that it's wonderful. And that is why I look forward to being with him forever in heaven, because in heaven, there's no, there's not going to be any sin and we'll only get to experience the beauties of holiness. We will be, uh, enraptured uh, with this beauty of holiness. And it's going to be beyond description to exist in that type of place for eternity in, a, in the beauties of holiness. So next we're going to see something else that it even gets more poetic and beautiful. This, this, this uh, verse 3, it says, From the womb... And the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. What does that mean from the womb of the morning? Well, we know the Lord Jesus was born of a woman. And I think it speaks of a lot of things. It says, from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. Jesus came into our realm of existence as a child born of a woman. And I think that's what's being alluded to here. It says, thou hast the dew of thy youth. Well, what does that mean, the dew of thy youth? Well, the dew is a moisture or condensation that um, manifests itself on the ground in the morning. Before it ever rained, back before the floods, it never rained. There was just a dew that would um, manifest itself 
uh, on the earth and it would water the earth. So can you imagine how much dew it would have to be to be able to water the earth to where there was no need of rain and the temperature that would have to be constant for that to be effective in nourishing the earth so that all this lush vegetation would be able to grow without rain. So that's what's being alluded to here. That kind of dew. Uh, it's the dew that would form gently on the earth that nourished all the green things in the morning. You know, and it's also, I believe, a, an allusion to the manna that formed on the on the earth daily in the wildernesses wilderness because remember in the wilderness they were like hey well we don't have any bread or food we're going to die so god calls manna to uh, appear in the morning so that they could gather it up use it to make the food they needed for the day and then they would it would be there again the next day if they tried to keep any of it it would rot it would just rot you know they couldn't try to keep any for the next day and the point of that was that God was saying, I'm going to provide for you everything you need. And the manna could be used to make bread. It could be used to make all kinds of different things. They use that manna to make. And they could make any kind of food they want to out of this manna. And it was, it was called bread from heaven, you know, the food of angels. And God provided that. Well, here we see the Lord Jesus being uh, compared to that same type of provision. Right. The same type of sustenance that that he just like the manna was all sufficient in nourishing the people. He is all sufficient in providing for everything that we need. That's why he came. He came here for that purpose. He came here for that very purpose. And that's why he's described here as. Um, the, you know, the the do thou hast the dew of thy youth so that's what it's speaking of in that he and, and why does it say the dew of thy youth because he came as the first fruits he came as the firstborn among many brethren so that's that's who he is to us and that's why uh, and we need to understand that that this psalm is telling us that in verse 4 he goes on to say, the Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So now hopefully you can see why Melchizedek is mentioned here. Because it's directly tied to the ministry of the Lord Jesus and what he was going to accomplish uh, in coming to the earth. And being the first fruit among many brethren, being the, uh, the firstborn among many brethren, um, he was accomplishing something and it was something very special. It was something set apart and holy. And that's who and what he is. His ministry is that. And it's a ministry that accomplished the will of the Father. And that's why the Father says, sit thou now at my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool. Okay. And verse 4 it says, the Lord had sworn and will not repent. That means this is going to happen. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
So now we see the, the importance of McKinseldeck and why it's important for us to know who he was. And now we see him being tied directly to the ministry of the Lord Jesus in this psalm. That's what's happening. Uh, now, verses 5 through 7, they're, they're, they speak of when the Lord Jesus is going to return in, in power to establish the kingdom on earth. Uh, that's what these uh, three verses are speaking of. You can see more detailed uh, information about that in the book of Revelation, particularly Revelation 19.11 speaks about, goes into a lot of detail about what five, six, and seven are speaking of. And it says, the Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up his head. So all of that speaks of him coming as a conqueror um, in his second coming to establish the kingdom and to put down all revolt, all uh, evil and unrighteousness that will at that time be rampant throughout the, the earth. At that time, during the uh, tribulation period, there will be so much sin and ungodliness similar to Sodom and Gomorrah similar to what we saw in Sodom and Gomorrah. So you see how that God has tied all of these things together, that his revelation is not some private interpretation. No, it all ties together. It all is one revelation of one message to us. And so that's, uh, that's who Mechizedek was. Now we see Mechizedek was a person, a real person that lived on the earth, that God uh, raised him up for a purpose. And one thing I want us to take from this, if nothing else, is that the ministry of right, the righteousness of God has always been, it did not begin with uh, the printing of the Bible. It didn't begin with um, Moses in the five first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, and him saying this is what happened in the beginning. People knew who God was. God had established himself on the earth very clearly, and um, that we can see that in Mechizedek. Um, God had already established a priesthood, this one that was going to have uh, far-reaching uh, implications. You know, we always think of Jesus, the descendant of David. That's what we always think of. And we think of Moses and Abraham and how that, that was the beginning. But clearly we see that Abram uh, gave a tithe to this man, Mechizedek. So the ministry of God was already on the earth. God has just been um, merciful to call out uh, these these people, uh, the Hebrews, to allow them to have this very special ministry to the world to continue the ministry of who he is, what he has accomplished, what he can accomplish, and what he will accomplish in, accomplish in the future. 
But that does not mean that there was not a ministry or a testimony of who God is prior to that time. Job is considered the oldest book in the Bible. And we can see that there was clearly a lot of knowledge about uh, sacrifices, how to worship God, uh, righteousness. All those things are manifested in the book of Job. So God has had a testimony for himself and will always have a testimony for himself because he's God. And so hopefully uh, we can see now the significance of Melchizedek. And as we move forward and we study in Hebrews, I hope you keep these things in mind so that they add to your understanding of why um, Melchizedek is mentioned and how that the Lord Jesus is superior to him and um, hopefully this study uh, here will prepare us for the next study that's ahead of us. Uh, so um, with that said, let's close. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for your ministry to us and through us. Father, I pray that you would use uh, my humble offering to help others uh, understand your word, understand our place, what you've accomplished for us, who we are in relationship to you, and what are, what it is that you have for us to do. We definitely have a purpose, each one of us, and we have individual, individually, we have been called to a purpose, and collectively. And I pray we would support one another, uh, that we would lean on you for your guidance and understanding and that you will glorify yourself in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.